Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. The NBA draft happened Thursday. Which players are off to battle and which players are staying home? More bad draft puns and whatever else I might happen to have up my sleeve on episode 14 of The Bridge. Well, on second thought, maybe we'll take it easy on those draft puns because you never know if I might be getting the call in the near future to go off to war. But happy Sunday to everyone. Happy June 28th, 2015, episode 14 of The Bridge. More than enough to talk about, though, this week as far as the NBA is concerned. And this will probably be its last hurrah within the news as far as the league as a whole is concerned. I'm sure the goings-on of the NBA's most popular player in LeBron James will continue to be documented throughout these upcoming weeks, what he expects to do with his future as well as what the Cavs expect to do with their future as well. But we're getting close into that area within sports in that midsummer night's dream, if you will, where there's not much going on in the sports world. We just wrapped up this NBA draft. Obviously, baseball is in full swing, but we haven't hit the all-star break yet, so there's not too many things to get excited about, unless you're, of course, into tennis or the United States women's team playing in the World Cup. I will be watching the United States soccer team. I do get involved, like most of the country, when this comes around every couple years and the World Cup fills our TV screen, so I'll be rooting for the red, white, and blue. You can't go wrong with that. But as I mentioned, the big pressing topic that happened in the week previous to this podcast was the NBA draft. And I'm going to go full bore into this, talk a little bit about the teams that made out and the teams that were a little bit disappointing as far as how they might see themselves going to help with building their future as a franchise. Now, I do have to say there is one upside, if you will, of the NBA draft and that it's not too long. It doesn't really drag out too long like the NFL draft does. And every year it happens, I usually forget that it's a one night thing and I'm expecting this thing to just continue for the next couple days after the first round. But then they just come on and say, "Okay, second round. And then before you know it, that's it. It's over. Good luck. Have a good one. So teams really have to be careful, and it is almost a crapshoot in a way after the top 10 picks, maybe even the top 15 picks. You're really just throwing darts at a board, hoping for the best in the later rounds. Sometimes you end up lucky, sometimes you don't. That's why those teams that make trades that give them a lot of draft picks might not really be that impressive because if the draft picks aren't in the first round and early in the first round, there's really no point in just grabbing players because you're better off just trading for somebody you've at least heard of before. So we had this draft on ESPN. It was the highest rated draft ever for the four-letter network. It was close to last year's draft and closer still to the 2003 draft that had LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, some token white guy three-point shooter that I'm sure was in that draft as well as there is every year. 
I don't remember his name, but that's usually how that goes, too. We had Reese Davis heading the way as the lead analyst for this draft and taking charge with what was going on for ESPN. Jay Williams was also an analyst. Jay Billis was also an analyst, as was Jalen Rose. Now, I thought it was a good choice for Reese and both Jays because they follow college basketball and analyze the games throughout the season and throughout the NCAA tournament. So they have a good eye on the college game and they can really tell you a lot about the players that are about to be drafted, what they bring to the table, what they're going to be able to do for the team they end up with. We know Jalen Rose is a little knowledgeable in college, but he's more of an NBA knowledgeable mind. And some of the things that he did on Thursday night were highly questionable to give Dan Lebetard and Bomani Jones and Poppy a little bit of a shout out there for their show. If you've never watched it before, please do. Highly recommended and highly questionable. <laughs> Boy, these puns, I really need to stop. Anyway. Jalen Rose had a couple interesting comments. One of the things he mentioned is that there's no such thing as a draft bust. He threw out the number of how many players have actually played in the NBA in its entirety, somewhere around maybe 3,000. I'm not sure the exact digits, but basically said it's enough to just get drafted, to play college, to live out a dream, to buy your mom a house, to do all that sort of thing. That's more than enough, and there's really no such thing as a bust. Humorously enough, sitting at that same table, you could argue maybe was a bust as far as the NBA was concerned, and that was Jay Williams, who came highly touted out of Duke and was drafted, ended up with the Chicago Bulls, and was poised for a pretty decent NBA career as a point guard. Ended up getting into a motorcycle accident, and it just derailed his entire career. He was never able to play after that, and no one really knows what would have become of him if he was able to stay healthy because he was such a great college basketball player. Some people would argue that amazing college basketball players who have subpar careers in the NBA can be considered busts. A good example of that would be Christian Leitner, probably one of the best college players to ever play the game, I would say top five from at least players that I've been able to watch play or know about. Chris Mad Dog Russo might disagree with me on his program, but on this one, he's top five. He had an amazing career at Duke, made it to four Final Fours, the only player to ever do that, two national championships, the list goes on and on. In the NBA, he ended up with a lot of crappy teams. He was drafted to a crappy team, he ended up bouncing around throughout the league, didn't really find his footing until midway through his career when he had some good guys around him. He still was averaging, I think, 15 and 10 or something along those lines, but he didn't really become that superstar that people thought he would have been after his college days were over. So to say that there's no draft bus is just ridiculous because every fan of the NBA can tell you one player on their favorite team that just didn't pan out and was useless. We might have a couple of those this year. We'll see how things pan out with that. But injuries and lack of desire and inability to develop, definitely big things to make a bust. I mean, look at Greg Oden, who was taken before Kevin Durant. Supposed to be the next shining superstar in the NBA, and he's played maybe a season and a half, two seasons most, and however many years he's been within the NBA, he just doesn't have knees. And that's a problem. You need knees when you're going to be an NBA basketball player. And his didn't work, so neither did his career. 
and he never turned out into the player that everyone thought he was going to be. He did get that ring, though, as a bench warmer for the Miami Heat when LeBron won the title there a couple years back. So good for him. Good for him. The Luke Walton, the Adam Morrison, if you will, of the Miami Heat for that year. So on top of the bus statement that Jalen Rose made, he was also making these player comparisons. And I don't remember if ESPN had done this in the past, but when a pick was made, they talk a little bit about the pick. Then they'd throw up a little video about who this player best reminds them of. And they'd throw out anyone they wanted. Jalen Rose was throwing out these veterans, these guys that have been in the league for a long time, Hall of Fame players, comparing them to guys that have just played the college game. And some of them just didn't really make a lot of sense. And some of the current and former NBA players, as well as basketball analysts, were going at Jalen a little bit on Twitter, saying that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And some of those comparisons were a little strange and reaching for the fence for some of them. Probably strange for the players as well that they're getting compared to these NBA superstars or Hall of Famers or other guys within the league that are only a couple years older than them. Obviously, if you're a mainstream player and a superstar in college, you're going to get some comparisons because you're the most talked about player. But for these guys that are going in like the second round, guy he really reminds me of is Tyron Lue. Nobody got crossed over better than old Tyron, and that's exactly what this guy's going to do when he gets into the league. He's a heck of a player for that. All right, good. Thanks, Jalen. But the main problem I had with the draft is in its timeliness. One of the things the NFL likes to do during its draft is Roger Goodell hates if anybody tips off what a pick is going to be, whether it be on social media or on a different news outlet. Those whispers that are getting all the information before it's actually said live on whatever network the draft is on at the time. And if there was anything lacking in the draft, it was timeliness if you weren't just watching the draft on TV. Because if you follow the draft on Twitter, you were able to know what pick was coming at least one pick in advance of what was currently going on. And one of the main components of this was Adrian Wojnarowski, who is an NBA insider for Yahoo Sports Online and Fox Sports 1, which obviously don't have any affiliation to the four-letter network, so he could do whatever the hell he wants. I'm hoping I said his name right as well, but I'm sure he'll tweet out at me, or he might have already tweeted out at me that I said it incorrectly. So he's tweeting out the draft picks, he's tweeting out the trades, and like I said, it's one pick in advance, sometimes two picks in advance. He's getting everything up to date, and as soon as it's happening, he's letting everyone know while ESPN is still analyzing the previous pick and what impact that player will have on their team. Now, I spent the first five picks sitting in my car listening to Tom Byrne on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM. Subtle shout out there, Tom. It was nice that he had the show on while the draft was going on because he's one of the more knowledgeable NBA people that Mad Dog Sports Radio offers, so he was able to give some pretty solid insight on what was happening with the draft. But I was also following it on Twitter, so you're able to see what's going on, and his producer would come in and say that the second pick is in, and then he would try and guess who it was, and then they would talk about what that pick was for a little while. And then a couple minutes later, he'd finally give the live audio of Adam Silver announcing the pick. 
So a part of me just wants ESPN to bite the bullet and have somebody in Reese Davis's ear or one of the analysts' ears and kind of give them a heads up on what's going on behind the scenes so they're able to tell the public that this certain pick is probably coming according to such and such. I mean, there's nothing wrong of at least attributing who's doing the tweeting or where the information is coming from, because then you won't be wrong if it happens to be incorrect. I was somewhat half waiting for this guy to be wrong throughout the entire draft, but every time he tweeted something, he ended up being right. So there was a little excitement waiting for Adam Silver to throw out who the next pick would be, but in a way... You were kind of just waiting to see if this guy would be wrong. And there was that little like, oh, maybe he didn't get it. But every time he was right. So that sense of excitement wasn't necessarily there if you were also following what was going on on social media because people were figuring things out well in advance of what was happening on TV. The best example was when one of my Duke boys, Tyus Jones, ended up getting drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, I thought this was decently exciting for him to perhaps be playing with LeBron James. But immediately after seeing that on Twitter, you also see that they're making this pick solely to trade that to the Minnesota Timberwolves for a bunch of other things and some players and whatnot. So it was a little bit of a letdown knowing he's going to Minnesota because he won't be playing with LeBron, but it's good for Tyus because he's going home to Minnesota where he's originally from and he'll be playing with a lot of great young talent over there, which we'll get to in a little bit. But then ESPN starts pulling up these videos and what type of an impact player is he going to be for the Cavs and how's it going to be with him playing with LeBron and how's he going to be able to balance off with the other guards and he'll be taking over Matthew Dellavedova's spot so he can go back to sitting on the bench where he belongs. How will he work with JR? How will he work with Iman Shumpert? They're going through all these different things on their board and then a couple of minutes later it's like, yeah, we just found out they're actually going to be trading him over to the Timberwolves. Yeah, we got it. Thanks. So there's a part of me that hopes that next year they just keep up with the trend, allow somebody to have their ears where they should be, and give those guys the updates on what might be going on behind the scenes so they could let us know who's saying what pick is going where, and we could have that information and not be as ho-hum about it when it's actually announced because we already knew it five minutes ago by checking Twitter. So as I mentioned, take you through the top 10 here, not saying that the other picks weren't as important. I just don't want to waste my time or care enough to tell you them. So if you really care, check that Google out and search for the picks. Now, there was a part of me going into this draft that hoped it would just go chalk because that's what happened in the NFL draft. The first five or so picks just basically went as you would have expected them to go. There was a part of me that was hoping that would happen here because the lead up to the draft is always crazy, especially on sports talk radio. Everybody has an opinion on who's going to trade for whom and who's going to go where and what's going to happen to the teams and what are the teams going to do when their player is off the board. It's crazy. There's also a part of me that enjoys when it doesn't and a couple teams or people are incredibly pissed off because it didn't. That's what happened in this particular year's draft, at least after the first pick. That first pick went to the Minnesota Timberwolves, who seem to have a pick in the top five for the past 34 years. And they've been able to get some great young talent on their team, but it's kind of getting to the point where you're just like, all right, let's start putting those wheels in motion now and maybe getting some wins. This year's first pick was a little bit of a no-brainer, but what seems to happen every year is as the NCAA tournament gets farther and farther away, 
some players tend to just drop drastically in the mock draft standings. And it always baffles my mind that when basketball games aren't being played, how are these people decreasing in value? Where are you getting this information from? Did you see them playing a pickup game in the park and they were missing jump shots and played poor defense? Did they wrong you while walking your dog in a public park? Like, how do they fall so far or fall at all when they're not even playing anymore? Once the tournament is over and you make your final discrepancies and you get your final list, that should be it. I think a lot of it has to do with interest and stirring the pot and getting things riled up for people. But sometimes you just got to take a step back and go, look, this is the best player. And that's the end of it. If he sprains his ankle going to get the newspaper at his parents' house, or if he doesn't cut the grass for them in a straight line, let's not go crazy. Speaking of cutting the grass in the straight line, Wisconsin's Sam Decker was drafted in the first round at like 19 or 20 or something. There's a picture of him on social media today. Cutting his parents' grass. Nice. Obviously hasn't gotten that check yet. But back to the draft, Minnesota's first pick was Kentucky's Carl Anthony Towns, who was a seven-footer that was one of the towers that Kentucky had on its national almost championship team this year. He only played like 21 minutes a game, but it was because John Calipari had so many weapons. He didn't need to use his players for too long, and he had a great way of subbing them in and out when he got pissy at one of them. So we didn't get to see a ton of Carl Anthony Towns, but what we did get to see was good enough. He's a great big man. He plays great defense. He's very athletic around the rim. He's basically everything you would hope for in a big man. Eventually, they're probably going to have him step back and shoot some outside threes. He's got a great looking shot, and he's going to be great for them on defense, which is good because I think the Timberwolves ranked last in the league in points per game last year or something along the lines of that for their defense. So they really could use a big man down low. What's good for him is he'll also be a great compliment to Andrew Wiggins, who is now on the Timberwolves because of the Kevin Love to the Cavaliers trade. Cleveland may have wished they still had him on the team if things don't go according to plan in the next couple months, but we'll get there soon as well. They've also got Anthony Bennett, who was another top prospect that they drafted in the first round as well. And of course, Ricky Rubio is coming back as their point guard, who will have a great sub in Tyus Jones, as I mentioned before. Not only are they going to have all this young talent, but former Timberwolf Kevin Garnett is returning to his first team for one more year, it seems, in his NBA career. So he'll be able to mentor all those young guys and all those big men down low. I think it's a great pickup for them. He might not necessarily put up 2010 numbers, but he'll give that veteran leadership that those young guys are going to need. And it's also great for him to come back home to Minnesota to finish out his career. So after that first pick, that's when things were about to get fun because the Lakers were in discussions with a lot of different things. There was, of course, the possibility of them drafting another big man to go with their long list of big men that have been the successful recipe for championships that they've had as a franchise, or they were going to stir up the pot a little bit and make the lives for the next couple teams behind them a little bit more rough. And that's exactly what they did. Instead of drafting Jaleel Okafor from Duke, the Lakers decided to draft guard D'Angelo Russell from the Ohio State University. 
Now, as a Lakers fan, I'm excited for this pick for a couple of different reasons. And it's interesting because the Lakers have an incredibly long history of finding much success with big men as their centerpieces for their championship teams. Now, of course, it all started with George Mikan back when the Lakers were still in Minneapolis when they won those first five titles. You may know George Mikan from being a white center and also from the vaunted Mikan drill, where you basically stand under the basket and shoot right-handed and left-handed layups as fast as you can for a minute or whatever time period you put on it and see how many you make. I was usually pretty good at the mic and drill when I was in high school, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be an all-star player. It just means you're very good at making right-handed and left-handed layups in a quick amount of time. After Mikan came Wilt Chamberlain, then there were five in the 80s with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Shaq came to town in the early 2000s for three of his own, and then the Lakers didn't win again until Paul Gasol and Andrew Bynum joined up with Kobe Bryant, and they won those two titles in the late 2000s. Now, L.A.'s pick of Russell probably has a little bit to do with how the league has changed as a whole. It's become a much more smaller league and a much more three-point-oriented league, especially in the Western Conference. The Eastern Conference is known for its tough defense and the grit in the post game and all that sort of thing, where the West is run and gun and showtime and fun and people actually want to watch the games because the teams win a lot of games, unlike the East. Russell can shoot that three-pointer. He can create open looks. He's a great point guard with a great basketball IQ. Now, he didn't play point guard the entire season for Ohio State. He did a lot of things. He was a great facilitator, and he's just somebody that could really open up the floor for whatever team he happens to play for and be a huge impact player for that team on the offensive end. Defense is a little iffy, but such is the case with the NBA in general. Now, by drafting him, the Lakers are basically saying that they're okay with keeping Julius Randle, and that could be incredibly good for what he's able to do with Russell as far as the pick and roll is concerned, because both players were very good at that when they were in college. And it could also mean that the Lakers will be able to play some of that more run-and-gun type of play, be a little bit more up-tempo bring that showtime back to L.A. like the days of Magic Johnson and co. But on the other hand, they pass up on one of the best big men in this draft, one of the best big men in college basketball last year in Jaleel Okafor. Now, as a Duke fan, I watched a lot of Jaleel throughout the season and in the NCAA tournament, and he was a great offensive player. He could create, whether it's real down low in the post, he can catch it up high and then back down a player to get farther down into the post. He had quick feet, he had quick post moves, he's going to be a great offensive threat for the Sixers if he stays there. And by the way, spoiler alert, there were times during the game, however, where he would draw a double team or maybe even a triple team and just take a little bit too long to get rid of the basketball. He would allow these guys to attack and get into good defensive position against him and then just kind of bait them there with the ball. Like, you'll never get this. You'll never get this. They triple team me and they play defense. They get this. Yeah, that's that's too much. He was a little slow at times in doing that. I think that was a problem for his offense. 
I thought he could have been better at times. Now, they don't win the national championship if he's not on the team. Don't get me wrong. He shot like 66% from the field, which is, if not the best all-time, pretty close to it. He was a great threat in the post. He worked off well with his teammates. The problem is, in the tournament, when he played up against some bigger competition, it seemed like his true colors might have been coming out a little bit, and he didn't necessarily dominate as much as he did earlier in the year against lesser opponents. That's not to say he just didn't have a poor game. Sometimes you do. If you look at what he did in the national championship game against Wisconsin, I think he only ended up with 10 points. But he got into some foul trouble and just didn't really have it, sat a lot of the game. But then when he did score a couple baskets, they were in crunch time and really helped out the team. So even though the scorebook says 10, they were pretty important baskets when they did come. The downside for Jaleel's game is he can't shoot free throws for shit. And he's one of the worst free throw shooters I've ever seen. And he would work well with guys like DeAndre Jordan, Dwight Howard, a former Laker big who couldn't shoot free throws to save his life. Shaquille O'Neal, a former Laker big who couldn't shoot free throws to save his life. Now, obviously, you don't not draft a player because they can't shoot free throws, but it just blows my mind. What are you doing in your spare time, dude? You don't need to work on your offense. Get to the free throw line. The hack of Jaleel is going to be on in the NBA. You just wait for it. It's not going to take long for teams to start sending him to the free throw line like they did with Shaq and like teams are doing with DeAndre Jordan. Another downside that people have mentioned for Jaleel Okafor is his defense. He's not the greatest defender for being so big. He doesn't have as quick a feet on defense as he does on offense, which is strange. The pick and roll gives him problems, especially hedging a three-point shooter outside of the key. Very difficult for him to defend out there. And sometimes he just barrels up the floor and is the last guy to get down the court and isn't necessarily someone you could run and gun with, which the Lakers might be going to do now some people said his effort wasn't there he was out of shape he could have did better it all depends on who you talk to only time will tell but it was quite the move for la to go against the grain of their franchise and pick up d'angelo russell L.A. also had two other picks that they made. They got Larry Nance Jr. and Anthony Brown. I can't tell you anything about either of those players because I don't really know much about them. You can kind of see the Lakers starting to think ahead now with keeping Randall and drafting a guard, a possible point guard in D'Angelo Russell, that they're looking past the Kobe era into the future and who's going to be those guys when he leaves. That still doesn't mean, though, that they can't make a run here and maybe even next year if Kobe decides to come back. It's rebuilding time, but there's still time to make one last run at things. And because L.A. didn't go with a big man in the draft, they're going to be trying to go after one now in free agency. And one of the big names is LaMarcus Aldridge, who announced that he's going to be leaving the Blazers and not returning back. Early rumblings say that the offer of $80 million over four years is on the table for LaMarcus Aldridge. He's apparently a friendly fan of Kobe Bryant. They have a summer home close to each other, I think. So Kobe's going to be trying to get him to come to L.A., but a lot of other teams will be looking out for him as well, such as the San Antonio Spurs, which I think is probably his best fit if he doesn't come to the Lakers because San Antonio is also in that rebuilding but still trying to make one more run at things stage. It was announced Tim Duncan's probably going to come back for one more year. 
Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili will probably do the same thing. So if they can just get a couple other guys to fill the holes that they found in the playoffs and throughout the regular season, they're going to be trying to make another run as well. Now for the Lakers, there's a couple other free agents out there. I mentioned earlier in the show, Kevin Love is a free agent. They're definitely going to go after him. DeAndre Jordan from the Clippers, funny enough, is a free agent as well. I think he had some tiffed with Chris Paul, and he might leave the Clippers for greener pastures, and maybe he'd like to stay in L.A., but just put on a different jersey. There was also a possibility that Rajon Rondo would come to L.A., but that might not be as strong now that the Lakers signed D'Angelo Russell. Kobe's a huge fan of his. Rondo was a huge fan of Kobe's. So at the time, it seemed like that was going to happen. And the last big name on the list, or one of the last big names on the list, is Dwayne Wade, who may or may not sign back with Miami and was in a little bit of rumblings talking to Kobe about possibly joining forces for the last run of their careers in Los Angeles. How interesting would that be? I think they would work great together, just like they did playing on the Olympic teams. So we'll see what happens with that. There's a part of me that thinks Dwayne is just going to stay in Miami because it's another one of those Kobe-esque scenarios where you want to stay with your original team for your entire career. Problem is, Pat Riley might not want to give Dwayne Wade what he thinks he's worth, which makes a little sense because of Dwayne Wade's injury issues, though he had a pretty impressive season last year even though he missed 20 games with knee injuries and sitting out he still put up like the second best three guard numbers in the league so we'll see if he ends up staying in the sun comes over to LA or if he decides to stay in Miami but as we'll get to Miami kind of looked ahead for that and drafted a player who can immediately fill those shoes if that's the case So that brings us to the Sixers. As I mentioned, they went with Jaleel Okafor, and they kind of had to, him being the best player on the board. You really can't be messing around and just hoping for the best because you might have a plethora of a couple players at the position you're drafting, which is exactly what's happened with the 76ers. So it's an interesting pick for GM Sam Hinkie, as the Sixers already have two big men in Joel Embiid and Norlene's Noel, who they just got in the past couple of years to fill that void in the post. The problem with Embiid is he's had a lot of injuries and there's rumblings that he might have another one and he might need surgery again to repair whatever is ailing him this time, which just doesn't bode well for the Sixers if that's the case. If not, Throw him out there and see what he can do. But it's interesting to see if one of those players is on the trading block, if they're going to stick with the three bigs, because it's really not incredibly necessary. There are a couple of videos running around of some members of the Sixers doing one of those jersey video photo shoot type things with Jaleel Okafor and a couple of his teammates. Once he was done with the photo shoot, he immediately just dropped the Sixers jersey to the ground and walked out of the room. Peace! I don't know if that means... uh He's not a huge fan of the Sixers, he doesn't like the jerseys, or if he had dinner plans. I guess we'll find out soon enough. So Okafor goes to the Sixers, which put the next team on the board in quite the predicament. And wouldn't you know it, it was the New York Knicks. Now the poor Knicks spent all of last season, their worst season in franchise history by the way, trying to tank but not really trying to tank. You had Phil Jackson come in as the new GM saying that this team was going to make the playoffs and he wanted to make a name for himself in New York. You had Derek Fisher as his basically chosen head coach who was in his first year wanting to make a name for himself as well. 
But then you had the Knicks team that just wasn't very good. And Carmelo Anthony, their superstar best player, was battling injuries. So it was kind of just like, all right, let's not be winning like we are. But then when the tanking was really in full force, the season was coming to an end. They won and ended up pushing their wins to a number that didn't really help them in the draft lottery and resulted in them earning the fourth overall pick, which did not please the fans at all. Thankfully, Derek Fisher wasn't harmed, at least not that we know of. So the Sixers lucked out with the third pick. L.A. lucked out even more with the second. And then number one, of course, went to the Timberwolves again. So a lot of pressure on the Knicks coming into this draft. A lot of pressure on Phil Jackson. Who were they going to go with? Who was going to fall for them? Were they trade up? Would they trade their pick? Oh, God, what was going to happen? I mean, best case scenario for them, Carl Anthony Towns goes first. The Lakers shock the world, take Russell second. And then the Sixers don't take Jaleel Okafor third because they don't need a big man. But who the hell else were you going to pick? It's not like there were these amazing names left. I mean, granted, they could turn into amazing names, but there was a lot of European players who haven't necessarily panned out in the past, oh, I don't know, two decades. Or you could take a reach on a player that needs a couple years development and see what happens. They chose to not do that and took Okafor, which means the Knicks were forced in a way to take one of those players that could possibly develop into a very good NBA player. That player, of course, is Latvia's own Kristaps Porzingis. And God bless the New York radio market who have to deal with the callers who are going to be bringing up this kid and butchering this man's name like there's no tomorrow and no end in sight. Hopefully I have it right, and if I don't, I'm not going to say it too many more times so I don't continuously get it wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm all right with Porzingis, or Porzy to his friends. So maybe we'll just call him Porzy. Good old Porzy. Shout out, though, to Commissioner Adam Silver for getting this name right. Unlike when NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell mispronounced Marcus Mariota's name, even though he was going to be the first or second pick of the draft this year. Well done, Raj. So the Knicks and Phil Jackson go with Porzingis, who's a seven-footer. He can shoot threes. He's a little bit like Dirk, but he doesn't really eat as much. As Colin Cowherd said on his show, he looks like breadsticks with tennis shoes on. And that's about as good of a visual as you need. So if you close your eyes and think you're at Olive Garden eating their glorious breadsticks, just put some shoes on the bottom of that and stretch it up to seven feet and you got Porzingis. Now, he does potentially have the talent to turn into an amazing player. The problem is, it's probably not going to happen overnight. For the Knicks, that's a bit of a problem because Carmelo Anthony isn't getting any younger, and he was promised by Phil Jackson that they're going to bring in these great players, they're going to build around him, and they're going to go for an NBA championship. Kind of hard to do that if you have a player that you need to develop for the next couple seasons. So you've got this kid that's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's happy to be in New York. He wants to play for the Knicks, which is interesting to say after what happened when he was drafted. Because when Adam Silver read his name, the Knicks fans, and there were a lot of them because the draft was held in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, so they didn't have to go far, just booed and booed and booed. 
the collective gasp and then oh and then booze from the audience was unbelievable and typical new york knicks fans just beside themselves in anger immediately hating everything and everyone for this pick with some kid whose name they didn't know a week before the draft started there was some like preteen kid that they were showing on tv just booing with tears streaming down his face, this kid openly weeping at the draft because the Knicks drafted Kristaps Porzingis like this was it. They took his family, they took his friends, and they drafted Porzingis. This kid's never felt sorrow like this before. But I mean, once the dust settled, and it has, shockingly enough, it's settled, it could turn out to not be as bad as it originally seemed. He might need a little work, but there's potential there. And for the Knicks, maybe they go ahead and trade Carmelo Anthony and get him out of town. If they're really going to start rebuilding, get some more younger guys to put the icing on the cake for this rebuilding process. Because there's only so many years you can rebuild in New York without people setting the city on fire. I mean, the Knicks haven't had success since Willis Reed, so... Fans are a little bit anxious to get things off the ground with their beloved franchise. Now for the fifth pick, the Magic took Mario Henzoja. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Hizonja, I don't I don't know what his name is. He's from Croatia. I don't know anything about him. Hizonja, Hizonja, I don't know. You let me know what it is, even though it won't make a difference. Let me know if I have it right or wrong. But anyway, he's going to the Magic. Great player, yeah, grand, great, overseas, perfect. So at six, the Kings took Willie Cauley-Stein from Kentucky. He could help DeMarcus Cousins because of the way he plays defense. He's well-known as a defensive specialist, another big man who can play a lot of defense but isn't really great on the offensive end. The problem is, will he be playing with DeMarcus Cousins or without DeMarcus Cousins? He perhaps is on the trading block. Supposedly, their head coach, George Carl, wants him out of town. And the ownership, upon finding this out, was like, well, maybe we'll fire George Carl because DeMarcus Cousins is our franchise. So I don't exactly know what's going to happen with that. Nobody does yet. We'll see what happens in the future if he's going to stay or if he's going to go. If he does... I think Willie Cauley-Sign can help him out playing down low. Then at seven, the Nuggets took point guard Emmanuel Moutier, who skipped college to go play a year in China. Supposedly, he's a great point guard or could be a potential great point guard on the offensive end for the Nuggets. So yippee-i-o. The eighth pick went to the Detroit Pistons, and they took Arizona's Stanley Johnson. He's a great defender, but apparently he's not too great on offense. So maybe the Pistons are trying to go to their late 80s roots and just get these brute defenders on their squad again and make another run for an NBA championship. At 9, Michael Jordan's Charlotte Hornets took the Naismith Player of the Year in Frank Kaminsky from Wisconsin, which was a little interesting at 9 because they passed up on who I'm going to mention next and who they probably should have taken because he could probably help their team out a lot more than Frank the Tank, who had nice tank decals on the inside of his suit. Now, Charlotte already has Cody Zeller, and if you put Frank Kaminsky and Cody Zeller in the same room and tell them to shoot around at a basket, you're probably not going to see too many differences as far as their game is concerned. They both kind of like to shoot outside. They both need a little bit of bulking up to do. They're both going to be decent in the NBA, but not great. 
So it was confusing that Charlotte decided to go that way, considering what offer they had on the table from the Boston Celtics, who were making a hard push to get that same player that Charlotte ended up passing on, who ended up going in the next pick. The Celtics wanted Justice Winslow, who ended up going in the Miami Heat. They wanted him so badly, they put together a trade package that would have featured as many as six draft picks, including four potential first-rounders for both this draft and in the future, all to just get Justice Winslow at nine. And then Charlotte was like, nah, we good. For whatever reason, Michael Jordan just had a soft spot for Frank Kaminsky and just wanted him for the entire draft. Pleasantly pleased he fell to him, which means the Miami Heat were given the gift of Justice Winslow at 10. Justice Winslow, of course, a great Duke player during their national championship run. He's very talented. He's very athletic. He's very good on both sides of the ball. And what's good for Miami is that if Dwayne Wade does decide to test free agency and eventually leaves, he could fill his shoes immediately. If Dwayne Wade doesn't leave, Justice Winslow will be able to learn from him for the next however many years and develop his game under one of the best guards to ever play it. Pretty much a win-win for Miami and a great pickup in Justice Winslow. And lastly, I just wanted to mention a quick shout-out to collegiate baseball and, more particularly, the University of Virginia Cavaliers baseball team. The College World Series wrapped up last week, and Virginia ended up making it back to the College World Series for the second straight year in a rematch against Vanderbilt. What are the odds? Well, this year, not good, because Virginia was a very young team. A lot of their players got drafted. A lot of younger guys coming to the team, a lot of freshmen. They had a lot of injuries this season, and it wasn't even certain they were going to even make the ACC tournament. Nonetheless, make it back to the College World Series. They had to come back in both Super Regional games. They lost the first game of the College World Series, just like they did last year. Ended up winning Game 2 actually shut out Vanderbilt and I think was one of only two teams to do so in the entire season, so that was impressive, and then ended up winning Game 3, 4-2, to two, to win the first College World Series in Virginia history and the first in the ACC since 1955. They were the third team seeded third or lower in regional to win the College World Series since the tournament was expanded to 64 teams in 1999. Needless to say, after they won, they indeed partied like it was 1999. All right, not only is that enough horrendously produced pop culture references in this show, it's also the end of the show. You can check out more episodes of The Bridge at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same Twitter handle, at London Bridge. And please subscribe to the show on iTunes through my website as well. You can also search for it on iTunes under The Bridge. We'll finally get into baseball next week, as well as where we stand with the All-Star Game, other standings throughout the league, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.